Voters have a few more days to weigh in on a proposal to embed reproductive rights in the state's constitution. Over the past few months, we've heard from women who've ended pregnancies, doctors who perform abortions, academics who've looked at the politics of abortion. And we've taken you inside an abortion clinic and a crisis pregnancy center that's run and funded by abortion opponents. Today, we're bringing you one last conversation on the topic with a husband and wife telling their personal story about their experience seeking an abortion. Just medical reasons like ours were not necessarily being talked about. Mental health reasons like ours, like I knew, I knew mentally and emotionally I would break. This is Stateside. I'm April Bear. We've spent a lot of time on this issue, and that's because it's going to have huge ramifications for everybody in Michigan. This election, voters will choose what reproductive medical rights will look like in a post-Dobbs world. We understand there are great emotions at play here for a lot of people. So to end our series of stories on abortion, we wanted to get a little closer to the crux of some of those emotions. We're talking with mid-Michigan couple Aaron and Michael. We've agreed to keep their real names anonymous. And their story is about family, joy, love, and pain, both physical and emotional. Do you mind starting out by just telling us a little bit about your family? Uh, we, we met at work uh, almost uh, 18 years ago, and then we've been married uh, for 15 years. And uh, it, through a long journey of about a decade in our, in our 30s, it, it took us uh, a long time through uh, IVF, adoption, surgeries, and um, just luck, I think, um, to finally have our family. Of, uh, we have an eight-year-old son and a four-year-old daughter, um, and we're a very happy, uh, very happy family. May I ask, Aaron, what did it mean to you to finally become a parent after years and years and years of trying? Um, it meant everything. It was a very, very long journey and very emotional all the time. Um, and it was, sorry. That's okay. Did you have a very tough pregnancy with your son? No, actually. It was, um, the pregnancy itself was fine. It was just kind of full of terror because we were afraid <laughs> something would happen. Um, and we just wanted everything to work out well and um, wanted, you know, our baby to thrive and be healthy. And our oldest son, he was born a little premature but did just fine. Um, there were no complications or issues from that. And our daughter was born perfectly healthy and, um, you know, sassy from the get-go. So <laughs> um, our, the two pregnancies we had with the kids we have now were, were just fine. And they were wonderful. I understand that it wasn't very long after your your older child, your son was born, Aaron, that you found out you were pregnant again. Yes. How? Where was? What was? How would you describe where you were emotionally at that point? Well, we we were surprised it happened again because um, it it was supposed to be pretty much a zero chance of it happening the first time. So the fact that it happened again, we felt extremely lucky. Um, and we were really excited. And we honestly, at that point, didn't expect anything 
bad to happen because the first pregnancy had um, been so successful. We weren't we weren't thinking anything bad at that point. But that that second pregnancy ended up um, in a miscarriage after twelve weeks. Um, no particular reason why it just happened. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what happened next. Yeah. So, um, it wasn't, you know, it was about a year and a, about a year and a half later from the, the second pregnancy that, that ended in a miscarriage where we, um, we were excited to be, be pregnant again. And then, uh, once again, going through everything, we were a little more nervous this time because of the, of the miscarriage that we had before. A lot more nervous. A lot more nervous. Okay. <laughs> um, would be so, and, um, going through the normal checkups and going through the normal, you know, ultrasounds and everything like that, you know, everything seemed to be fine past the 12 week mark, you know, which was the mark we were afraid of before all the health checks had been fine. And then, um, it got to be a little bit after the holiday season, uh, there was some, some bleeding and some cramping specifically. So we went to a local hospital uh, to see if labor was starting. Um, it, it wasn't uh, contractions or anything like that. And there were some ultrasounds that were done. And basically we were told uh, in the middle of the night that we needed to go to a second hospital for more high definition ultrasounds because there might be an issue with the baby's brain. And that was scheduled for the next day. Um, they wouldn't tell us anything beyond that. Um, even our OB, my wife's OB would not tell us anything beyond that. That, that sounds terribly nerve wracking. It was. <laughs> yeah, it, it was. Yeah. You know, looking back, I don't know what I was thinking. You know, it was really, it was trying, I was trying to be hopeful that, you know, I, I, I would, I guess I assumed if something was really bad, they would have told us there at the first hospital. Well, and we also, I think we're both trying to be really hopeful because the heartbeat looked good and the heartbeat was strong. So we figured... <sighs> Whatever it is, we can probably weather it because the baby's alive. Um, so I think that was comforting to both of us that they had said the heartbeat sounds fine. So we were kind of hanging on to that, I think. Right. So tell us how you did find out, finally get a diagnosis. When we did the the high-definition scan, um, you know, they have the camera turned in such or the monitor turned in such a way that you can see it it was very obvious something was really wrong so when looking at so you know, looking at the images it was clear that there was something wrong with the baby's head um and, and you know i'm not sure what it was um the tech said that it would um you know, they're like, she's like, what did they tell you at the previous hospital? And I said, they came to tell us, you know, we need to come see you guys for ultrasounds. Well, I'm going to have to call the doctor in to explain these things to you um, about what's going on. And so um, the high-risk OB at the hospital we were at um, explained that our, our child had something called anencephaly, which is um, a very rare final form of spinal diphia that the, the skull is not formed specifically and basically the amniotic fluid eats the brain away specifically. So what we were seeing on the scans was there basically was no head right above the eyebrows. That's pretty there, much, yeah. The baby's, you know, top of the head was was missing. And so, you know, I had initial questions like, you know, is this a pregnancy that would, you know, be dangerous, first of all, like, you know, to her, to her living or not? Um, and the answer to that was no. Um, but as we dug further into it and asking questions, it was clear that, 
we were going to have a very difficult decision to make in the sense that um, the labor would most likely have to be induced. She would have to carry to full term because there was no brain. So there would be no connection to the brain, to the baby's brain, to her. Hey, it's time to get going, um, you know, when labor would start. Um, and then additionally, we asked about, you know, initially there at that meeting, you know, what about organ donation, you know, carrying the baby to term? And they're like, no, because um, most likely, because um, there is no brain, the, the heart will beat out last, but all the other organs will fail before. So there's nothing, you know, in that sense to do um, from there. We were basically grasping at straws, um, trying to find, like, some kind of silver lining where it was like if we – sorry, give me a second – we were trying to find anything positive we could get out of it because we so long we'd wanted to be parents. And, and prior to our son being born, we went through two surgeries, three failed rounds of IVF. And, you know, we went through the process of several adoption agencies, you know, to try to become parents. And kind of all that just kind of came back to this is trying to find something positive out of the situation that we could do. And it was pretty clear that, you know, there would be nothing, you know, beyond you know, having, you know, being able to hold our child, you know, after it was, uh, after it was born, because the, the, the child would not survive, it would not live. Um, there'd be no benefits to give its organs to anybody else. And what really, what we'd be dealing with from, it was, this is in January, and we'd be dealing until June of having to decide, can she go around in, at work and in the community, people seeing that she's pregnant and me asking about the baby. Congratulating and, me on the baby. Yeah. And- and those types of things, yeah. So I think that on top, thinking of having to deal with that, you know, upon all the history that we had dealt with before made it really difficult um, for us to find a way to decide to keep the keep the pregnancy. And mentally, I was already, like, at a breaking point, you know, emotionally from everything we'd been through from the last decade. Thinking about going another um, several months kind of knowing I was just waiting for my baby to die, to be born so it could die. It's just, it's harrowing. I feel it's been very common for people to just walk up to anyone who appears visibly pregnant and say, oh, you know, congratulations, you know, make comments, make jokes. Are you expecting? I feel like it's only in the past couple of, you know, five to 10 years when there has been any acknowledgement that that we may not know what's going on with a pregnancy at all. Right. Yeah. Right. Aaron, at this point you were at 19 weeks, I think, and that's that's before the cutoff for viability, but it's later than most of the first trimester abortion procedures that are performed. What was it like even just trying to find a clinic that would see you? Um Well, we looked into um, Planned Parenthood and we were past, you know, the, I don't remember what the cutoff was, do you? Yeah, I don't remember. They were past the cutoff for Planned Parenthood. Because at this point, by the time we got the results, I believe I was even almost 20 weeks. Yeah. And and it was too late for Planned Parenthood. Um, You know, getting a procedure done in a hospital was obviously not an option. Um, can can you explain why? Yeah, the reason why we couldn't have it done in a hospital, which was explained to us, I'm like, so why can't we do it in a hospital? And the, and the, and the 
high risk OB at the hospital we were at where we got the diagnosis, like, well, the baby still has a heartbeat. And there's a Michigan law that says if a child still has a heartbeat, you know, a hospital cannot perform a medical abortion unless, you know, it's the life of the mother is at risk. They also Uh, couldn't induce the pregnancy um, early, you know, with with the heartbeat either. Anencephaly is about 1 in 20,000 births. Like I said, it's very rare. But with the laws that exist, it's obviously they didn't didn't think of this one um, specifically in writing those laws in the state of Michigan. So those those weren't an option. Um, and after talking about that, they did give us one recommendation at the hospital um, if we decided to choose that route um, of a local uh, clinic that would perform it um, because Planned Parenthood was, I think it's 18 or 20 weeks, um, was the cutoff date. We were 19 and a half at the hospital, so by the time we scheduled, we would have been past their past their uh limit um but we also only had four weeks really to work because to think about this to make a decision because of the national ban at 24 you know so we had a kind of a short window here to decide what to do you know after making the decision which was not easy it took us took us a date several days even though i think i i i knew what the right thing to do was because there's no way uh aaron could have you know carried the baby just mentally with everything we'd done before I was, I think, probably there earlier than, than she was. Yeah. And so our do- once we made that decision, her personal physician and her OB got together to try to help the situation and find something beyond the, the clinic that was in the um, given to us by the hospital. And they, they ran into a couple. They ran into one, which they thought was a good one, but they, they found later by talking to other OBs and others that this was a clinic that would kind of um, you had to go in, but they would show you videos and kind of shame you to stop you from doing it ahead of time. I obviously didn't need anyone to shame me any more than I already was. And so, um, so we ended up making the decision to use the uh, to go to the clinic that was recommended by the hospital that we went to after we made the decision um, as a couple and as a family to to abort the pregnancy. We need to take a short break. More with Aaron and Michael in a moment. Support for the Stateside Podcast comes from Kalamazoo College, offering a personalized education that combines critical thinking, curiosity, and creativity, committed to preparing students for meaningful careers that make a positive impact on the world. More at kzoo.edu. Support for Michigan Public's stateside podcast comes from Lake Trust Credit Union, working to empower financial well-being for Michigan consumers, businesses, and communities, committed to financial solutions and advice to support people and families. More information at laketrust.org. Aaron, I know this is so hard to talk about, and I I really appreciate your being willing to even go there on the subject. As much as you feel comfortable with, can you tell us what it was like going through uh, this procedure, a DNX, at an outpatient clinic? Um, It was... It was honestly torture. Um... 
no human being should have to go through that kind of procedure, wide awake and feeling everything. Um, anesthesia is not allowed to be used. So, um, because you're not in a, you know, hospital setting, but then you're not allowed to get a procedure like this at the hospital setting. So they basically forced you to, to, to undergo this, um, you know, wide awake and feeling absolutely everything. And, um, it will forever probably be the worst experience of my entire life. The most pain I've ever felt in my entire life. Um, much worse than actual childbirth, which I've also experienced twice. Um, and, uh, it was a two-day-long procedure, both days equally horrible, because it was a more advanced pregnancy. And, uh, yeah, without going into a lot of detail, because I honestly um, never told Michael what happened behind those doors. Because I don't want... He doesn't need to know what I know. And the difficult thing about the two-day part was hard, too. Um, the part that I did experience was basically we were given home remedies to induce labor at home. Basically, the, the entire day and night before, she was in labor in our home. You know, before the procedure um, could be done, and where I was not allowed to go back and, and be a part of it. And so that was that was... I mean, it was all difficult for me to see, but that was the part I did witness, which was I just felt very, uh, just did not seem not right in the, the state of, you know, the time we're in, that that should be how this is handled. You know, that evening, I, I like I said, she never told me what happened behind those closed doors, but I was witness to what happened that evening, was up all night and trying to, to comfort her as best that I could, but she was basically going through labor in our own home, and I was just given a cell phone number to call in case things went you know, difficult or got too difficult. I was, didn't know how to handle it, you know, uh, to call, um, for 24 hours. And then we were just to come in early in the morning and the, the procedure would be done, um, you know, to, uh, abort the child. Aaron, it's obvious this was a terribly, terribly traumatic thing for you to go through. I mean, was it also isolating? It sounds like it, it, it must've been a difficult thing to have to, sit through and meter out who you were going to explain things to and who you just couldn't. Yeah, I think, I think it's been hard for both of us to think that, you know, that in a way this is something that sometimes we feel like we have to hide because it obviously shouldn't be anything that, you know, that we're ashamed of it, neither one of us feel like it's something we did wrong or um you know that wasn't in the end the right decision but you know with how politicized things are you never necessarily know who you can who you can trust with that kind of information um 
And I think something for us was it was like you didn't want to take the risk because you didn't want someone to hurt you even worse, you know, by what they might say about it or make you feel. So, yeah, it's it's definitely hard knowing who you can share this information with and who you can't um, just because you're not sure how they'll react. And, you know, if they'll say something that honestly would ruin our relationship forever um, because I think Michael and I both agree if somebody tried to say something to us to to shame us or try and make us feel bad, that would that would be the end of the relationship right there because we we can't have people in our lives that don't that can't see that this was the absolute last thing we ever wanted but was also 100% necessary yeah it, folks may have heard a few minutes ago us mention that you do have another child and i'm so struck by the fact that after going through this and having to terminate the pregnancy in that way that you did make the decision to keep trying. And Aaron, you did get pregnant again. How did that experience go for you? We actually weren't trying. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, at this point, had been so traumatized um, by the miscarriage at 12 weeks and then this, you know, procedure at 20 weeks that um, we were done. We had <laughs> thrown in the towel pretty much, but um, we just honestly kind of stopped talking about it and stopped trying. But we did for a while look back into adoption again because we knew our family wasn't complete, but we also didn't want to ever go through anything like this again. Um, we did go through some counseling too right after you know the the abortion as well just to kind of heal as a couple. Additionally, it was for also to have someone to talk to about what actually happened. I, I kind of made it a deal. If if she wasn't going to tell me about it, she had to tell somebody because she couldn't carry what happened behind those closed doors for the rest of her life. We also had to find a therapy group it, for lost children. That's a really hard thing to do about this topic. But infertility and loss of children is, can lead to divorce uh, in families for a lot of different reasons. And so we were also trying to you know, decide what to do is be, be continue to be parents and grow our family, but also we were trying to find a way to stick together as a couple. There are plenty of support groups and things like that for people who miscarry or people who, you know, have infertility and things like that. But there's not a lot of people willing to admit, you know, that um, they've had an abortion enough to have support groups for that. But it's just as difficult, if not more so, Um than some other situations. So it's it's really necessary to be able to talk to somebody else who's been through it and, you know, work those kinds of feelings out together just like you would any other kind of support group. And luckily we were able to find one, but it was about an hour and a half away, you know, and we were able to find a group to go to. And they were, I, I how instrumental they were in helping us for about those four to five months was really important and it really really helped i was the only husband that went yeah um which i feel is another kind of stigma i think i don't know if that husbands go to talk about these things or feel comfortable talking about this or they don't i don't know they don't want to or they don't think it's their place to but I, I would go and i was the only husband ever there you know we went and heard other stories of other issues that people 
have that was different than ours, but people had a very difficult decision to make. It was a very wonderful experience to have other people and wonderful, I guess, I I guess it's a weird word to use, but it was, but it was wonderful to have a place where we could just talk about it and our anger and our frustrations, our anger at society and the world. And, but also it was humbling as well to hear other stories that people had had, you know, because there were some that we thought our decision was difficult. And I'm going to be honest, there were several others that I felt they went through something way worse than we did. But everyone in that group, there wasn't a single person where that was something they had ever thought they would consider, you know, in their lives. Nobody sets out, you know, planning on on needing to do this um, or even thinking it's something that will happen to them until you're in a medical situation, maybe where it suddenly becomes, you know, part of your life. And then and then you get it. And additionally, after that as well, before we, you know, didn't really try, but tried and and became uh, expecting parents again. We also went to genetic specialists to go see, like, were we irresponsible? You know, is this something that, you know, was genetically carried, you know, that we didn't know about? You know, we found out that this was not due to any genetic um, history between, between Aaron and I, but it was just bad I guess, you know, luck or luck of the draw or whatever um, that, that happened with this. So, you know, we asked, are we being irresponsible if we do decide to try again? And then the genetics, you know, genetic doctors were like, no, because I think I was, you know, I, I knew we wanted to, our family to grow, but I was just afraid of ever anything going like that happening again. You know, I think that was important for us to do, but I think we also realized this wasn't something we wanted to do forever for the rest of our lives. But I think it was a very important process in our to keep our marriage together and to keep our family together, to take the put the work in, to find those people and to talk to those medical specialists and to find those other you know women and couples that went through this and talk to them, uh, to make sure we could come out the other side, whatever our family would look like afterwards, but to, to make it together. It's evident that that you have come a long way with this in the years that have passed since then, Michael. This past year, you actually wrote a letter that talked about your family's experience. And, and having to have an abortion. Could you maybe tell us what that was about and who you sent it to? You know, it, we've had several editions of the letter. Um, initially, it was written to our employer, and our employer was supportive, but when they ever, they talked about their healthcare plans, you know, for employees, like, for example, this wasn't covered. Like, this procedure was not covered by our insurance, and it had to, it cost over about $2,000, you know, and I guess I was not angry with the employer, um, our, our employer about this, but I said, you know, when you have meetings with, you know, health insurance companies, I'm like, I would like you to give them this letter to talk about it. And I, I understand if we don't change our health care plan because of this. But I go, the fact that people don't feel comfortable to talk about it just feels wrong. And I can't imagine, you know, a family having to have to have money being the factor of this decision. We were fortunate enough where it wasn't. You know, but to have money be a factor of this to make a decision in something that's so difficult like this, I can't even imagine that as well. Did anything change after you sent that letter? For our, for our employer, no, um, it, it it did not. Um, nothing changed. Uh, I, I do think what it, it did make me realize, though, is it made me realize that more people, I think, were supportive of this type of decision and issue than we thought. 
you know, the response that we had from our, our um, head employer was very supportive. Um, he asked if there's anything uh, we needed. Did Aaron need any specific help or extra time off? Very upset that we had to make this decision. Uh, can learn from it and grow from it. And he goes, it, it probably won't change anything overnight. But the more people talk about these types of things, no matter what the issue is, you know, this issue happens to be abortion, but no matter what that controversial or difficult issue is, the more people talk about it, you know, sometimes solutions can be found. The thing that I found frustrating is the, the debate the past years that you only hear certain exceptions. You know, and it's, it's wonderful that people talking about these exceptions to row, like, you know, the health of the mother and rape and incest, which I, you know, I understand why those exceptions, but the story that of ours was never getting like told. Because as I talked about earlier in this interview, there are so many things that can go wrong in a pregnancy that, you know, people who write laws don't know about because they're not doctors. And in a situation like ours, you know, there's always so much focus on the heartbeat, you know, as as the indicator of life or age of viability or whatever you want to say. And like in our situation, for example, there was a heartbeat, but only because the only part of the brain that existed probably was the medulla to beat the heart. But there was no brain there. There was never going to be any consciousness. There was never going to be any life, really. And so the way a lot of these laws are written, it's it's not considering, yeah, every angle like this or every reason why it might happen. Somebody doesn't necessarily have to have a tragic a tragic situation of like rape or incest or even the health of the mother to still maybe need to have a procedure like this. And yeah, just just medical reasons like ours were not necessarily being talked about. Mental health reasons like ours, like I knew. I knew mentally and emotionally I would break if, sorry, if I was forced to carry the pregnancy to term only to watch my baby die in my arms. I knew I couldn't do it. And so while, um, you know, my, my physical health might not have been at risk, my mental health most assuredly was, you know, assuredly was. It was, I, I don't think I would have survived it. Um, well, my, sorry, it's her dog. <laughs> she doesn't like me crying. Yes, I am sorry. Isn't it amazing how they always know? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they do. And that's the Stateside Podcast for today. I'm April Baer. Full Stateside episodes are always available to listen to. Stream them at michiganradio.org. Today's podcast was produced by Ronia Kabansag. Other producers on our show are Mike Blank, Mercedes Mejia, and April Van Buren. Our podcast editor is Rachel Ishikawa. Our executive producer is Laura Weber-Davis. Music for the pod comes from Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Hi. 
Hi, I'm Rebecca Williams. I'm Lester Graham. We've been working on a big project about Great Lakes birds called the Bird Connection. It will look at ducks and trumpeter swans. Egrets and herons. And piping plovers. Yes! We'll discuss what we've discovered at a Michigan Public Issues and Ale event. Including how some problems for birds are problems for people. It's at Arbor Brewing Company in Ypsilanti the evening of May 21st at 7. You can register at michiganpublic.org.